1: Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open them to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through verse 30. We're going to conclude chapter 1 today. The last time we gathered together, we began to learn what it meant to be a good citizen. And we got some interesting comments back from that. One of the questions I asked was how many of you have what is known as dual citizenship? That means that you have a citizenship in one country, but you're able to maintain citizenship in another country. Would you raise your hand? How many again have a dual citizenship? Anybody here today? Got a couple of you that got that, all right? Now, let me throw a curveball at you by saying this If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, the Bible says that you also have what is known as dual citizenship. You're the citizen of the country in which that you reside. And for us, it'd be the United States. And our other citizenship is going to be found in heaven. So the Bible says when we've trusted Christ as Savior. We've then trusted Christ as being the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, and he is the kingdom of God's eternal kingdom. And of that being the case, so we're a citizen of his kingdom. And you can find that in the book of Philippians, but chapter 3, verse 20, that talks about us having our citizenship in heaven and we're looking for the king to come back again, expectantly waiting for him to pick us up. But there's also another book in the Bible. It was a letter written by Paul to a group of people in Corinth. And he referred to those who know Christ as their savior as ambassadors. And we know what ambassador is. An ambassador is a citizen of one country that is sent to another country to represent the government or the king, the president, of the country from which they're coming from. And so they come to that country. So they go into that country. Most of you probably will know that when you go into Washington, D.C., there are various ambassadors from other countries that meet there. We have a United States ambassador. We have many of them that go into other countries and they represent us. Some of you kids may not know this. Maybe you do, it depends on how far you are in school. Then let's say that you're an ambassador for the United States and you go to a particular country. Let's say Germany. When you are in Germany, there's a little place that you call your embassy. And when you're in that embassy, that embassy is your embassy. That's like having the United States actual ground in another country. Now, when you're sent there, you're to represent the United States there. But let's say that there's going to be a horrific war that goes on. They always call their ambassadors home before the war goes on. Also, when we send out an ambassador, we provide all the needs of that ambassador so he doesn't have to go out and get a job in that country to support himself that they're already met. Those needs are met. And so you see these things about that. Now, as an ambassador, he doesn't merely sit in his office, but he also goes and he spreads good news or good cheer about the country that he's representing, the country that he's from. Now, you take that same metaphor and you put it into the realm of a Christian, you'll, it'll look like this. When we trusted Christ as Savior, we know that our home is really in heaven, but we're representing the Lord, heaven, on earth. Now, wherever we go, that's our little place of heaven, so to speak, until Jesus comes for us. Now, if there's going to be a big battle, like the end of the world, like we talked about at the rapture, as an ambassador, he's going to call us home before that occurs. We also know that he'll provide for our needs so that we can accomplish what he wants us to do. At the same time, we're representing the king of kings, so wherever we go, we should live like a king's ambassador, So we live according to the citizenship of heaven, and that's where we are in our passage today. What does it look like to become a good citizen of heaven? And I'd like to pick out some of those characteristics of what it would look like to be a good citizen of heaven. Now, this might be a good conversation for some of you parents on the way home today. You might ask your kids this, what does a good citizen of the United States look like? If you're a good citizen of the United States, wherever you go in the world, what would a good citizen look like? And have that conversation. I think it would be quite meaningful and helpful as it opens up their mind to that. But I'm going to move it away from a good citizen of the United States to talk about A good citizen of heaven. And what would that look like? And I'm going to pick out four because it's so clearly defined in this passage. And so if you'd like to follow along with me, you certainly can. So let's look at the characteristics of a worthy citizenship. Number one, we'd have a commitment to say that we will stand together in unity. Like the United States, it needs to stand together in unity. Well, we are to stand together with other believers in unity. Let's look at the passage here, and here's what it says. Paul is writing to the believers at Philippi, like he'd be writing to people like you and me, and he'd say, only let your conduct, and we learned last week, that means your citizenship. And So only let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So in other words, be a good citizen. And then he goes on to say, so that whether I come and see you, I can see that you're a good citizen, or if I'm absent, I may hear reports that you are still a good citizen of heaven, of the gospel of Christ. And now he explains what it means to stand together in unity. He says that you stand fast, that means stand firm, in one spirit and one mind, striving together. Let me see if I can explain this to you. As I was reading through the letters that Paul wrote to various Christians all over that area, besides the believers at Philippi, he'd be writing letters to people at Corinth, he wrote letters, or a letter to the people at Rome, and so he wrote various letters the various churches. It was interesting that whenever he would write those letters to at least those three churches, what was most on his mind was the concept of unity. And so I'm only sensing from that that if unity was so important to the Apostle Paul, it must have been extremely important to the Lord because he placed upon the heart of Paul to speak to the churches that they would be in unity which now then translates into that one of our core values as a believer is that we would live together amongst believers in unity. Now, so this doesn't get so big you can't take a bite of this apple. Let's talk about the people there at Philippi for a moment. Now, when we talk about people in Philippi, we're not just talking about that brothers and sisters with one another in a church membership have unity, although that is important that we're unified in our committees and we're unified in church, but it's more spoken on the individual rights of the believers that they're in unity with one another and they bring that unity spirit with them into their fellowship. So let's make it even more practical. What he's speaking about is that as a married couple that you would be in unity with one another. If you're in business that you and the staff and the employer, employee, especially if it's a Christian business, you would be in unity. If you're part of a Christian fellowship or a Christian ministry, that you would then operate together in unity. So unity was a very important core value. Now, he spoke to that in chapter 1. Next week, we're going to speak about that again from a little bit different perspective. Next week, we're going to speak about how to get along better with one another because he speaks to that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through through about verse 5. And so we're going to speak about how to get along better with one another. Maybe your relationship isn't bad, but you'd like to have it better. How do you do that? Paul's going to speak to that. But it was so much on his mind that he not only spoke about it in chapter 1, and then he gave the principle in chapter 2, he decided to call two women out in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. He named them by name, and he said that those two women would learn to work together in unity, that they would be like-minded with one another, and that is critical. But it didn't just stop in in the church at Philippi. He was also concerned about people in Corinth. Now, he had a different group of people to deal with. While he spoke in generalities to the people at Philippi, he was far more pointed to the people at Corinth. And here's what he said about that to them. Listen very carefully as he wrote to them this. He says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you and that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of another household, Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you, and now I say this, that each of you says this, and now he talks about the divisions and their babyness, and one of them saying, I'm of Paul, another says, I'm of Apollos, and another says, I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. And so everybody had their own little camps, instead of living out the core value of unity. So they didn't stand together in unity. So he spoke to that. And then if you go into Romans chapter 15, he speaks to that again. In Romans 15, here's what he says. And by the way, he speaks to this twice to the Roman people. In verse 5, he says this, Now, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind, I love this, and one mouth glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, because of that, receive one another, just as Christ has also received us to the glory of God. Now, let me appeal to you to your sense of um, comfort. How many of you is it possible that are listening to me this morning? then you've had a falling out with another believer whether it's in church or your family your son your daughter your grandparents your grandchild whether it could be someone that's in our midst right here do you know how you feel when there is a break in a relationship those of you who have had a relationship like perhaps even going into marriage and you're married now and but but I didn't say married now but you were married and you saw that you went in with all the best intentions of having great joy on your honeymoon But it wasn't long that for whatever reason, obviously it was a misappropriation of God's word in certain aspects of your relationship, either with one another or with your values with God, that all of a sudden that relationship dissolved. There are those of you that are listening to me today that are still carrying the wounds and the scars of broken relationships. And I'm not here at all to indict that. I'm only using that as an illustration to know the pain that you have is the same pain that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who are all unified has with you and me when we're not unified with him and we're not unified with one another. And that's why he speaks so often to the concept of having unity. Now let's step back for that in a moment. Next week, I'd like to speak to you about how do you take something that is broken and bring it back together again, if it's possible. It's going to take two people to do that. We're going to speak to that next week. But right now, I want you to understand the significance of the unity. And if you'd like to jot this down in your margin, I'd like to give it to you in a particular flow. This is a little simple little flow. When he wants us to have unity, here's what he wants it to look like. First of all, it has to be unified in our thinking. So in other words, we need to think the same thing. We saw that in the passage. So to have the same thoughts, that means we have to come together on the same information. So communication has to happen. Often, when you have a communication breakdown, you've got a trust breakdown, you've got a respect breakdown. And so when you start communicating, generally you're going to have conflict. And when you have that conflict, then you can have clarification, and that can bring about unity. So first of all, we have to think the same thing. So we have to have the same thing in our mind. Then it moves from our mind to our heart. We're going to see that next week as well when we talk about being soulmates. So there is this part about our heart that needs to be proper. But the only way our heart can be right is when we both have the same agreement on the same truths of nearly the same equal value, and that brings us together. And so when we have the right thinking then we will think the same, then we can feel the same, and then we begin to speak the same. And when we do that, then you're going to see unity with one another and then unity with a lot more people that are around us. And so that's what he's speaking to here. Let me quickly go to the next point because I'm going to bring out the aspect, is it unity at all cost? And no, it's really not. Let's go to number two. So we're to stand together in unity and I pray that we will do that. The second phrase is, I will serve together in evangelism. In this passage, he not only talks about that we stand together in unity, but we also serve together. The operative word is the word together in evangelism. And here's what you read. It says, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, you can mark that if you want to, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. But for a moment now, I'd like you to circle the phrase, faith of the gospel. So now we're going to talk about being unified. Now, we're not going to be unified in everything, but there are certain things that we need to be especially unified on, and that would be the faith, the doctrine, but also the doctrine of the gospel. So that brings us closer to the unity that he wants us to have. So we serve together in unity. And that is absolutely critical and crucial. What is very critical is you and I, we can can agree on music. We can agree on how we want to do our sanctuary here. We can agree on the times of services that we have here. But if we don't agree on the purity of the gospel, being by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, then all that other stuff that we might agree on won't matter because the times of the service, the music that we have, or how we set up our sanctuary, is not going to be the thing that builds the kingdom. What builds the kingdom is going to be the center of our life, which will be the gospel. And that's why we have to have teamwork together. Now, for those of you who don't know the testimony that Carol and I have had together she led me to Christ. We were not boyfriend and girlfriend. I was a lost surfer and she was a dedicated Christian. She did not date me. She just brought me to a meeting with her girlfriend where I would hear the gospel. She kept me close enough to make sure that I was underneath solid teaching, but she never got close enough to let me think that we were a boyfriend girlfriend item together. So I began to grow. But as we began to grow, it was the very next week after I trusted Christ that I loaded my little Ford Falcon, and she loaded her 64 Corvair Monza with kids, and so we both arrived at the youth meeting together. She then made it very clear to me that we would not sit every youth meeting together so that people wouldn't think we're boyfriend and girlfriend. So at the very beginning of our relationship of serving the Lord together in evangelism, we then had a heart turned toward reaching our friends for Christ. Now, the only thing we did do is after we would then go to the youth meeting, we spent all the time with our guests, very little bit of time with one another. I'm sure we kind of still gave goo-goo eyes at one another occasionally, or at least I gave goo-goo eyes at Carol. Do you know what goo-goo eyes are, kids? If you don't, ask your mom or dad, all right? And I would do that. But at the end of the evening, because we still wanted to strive together for the faith of the gospel, is that she would get home before I did, Before I went home, I'd swing by her house, and we would end the evening praying for Charlie and Bill and Frank and all the people I would bring, and she would then pray for all the people that she would bring. Then when we went to church together, different than youth group, we sat together, but we carried our Bible. And she jokingly said, I always put my Bible between Stan and me, because if he wanted to get to me, he'd have to climb over Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know, that kind of thing. We were serving the Lord together. Now, does that mean we didn't have arguments and fights? I remember one time that my mom says, Stan, you need to try to date somebody else. So I did. After the first date, I brought this gal home to show my mom and dad. And as soon as that gal was out the door, my mom said, you better go call Carol back. You know what I mean? They're just just out there serving the Lord together. She's my best bud. We went out yesterday, and we spent the day looking at houses and doing our beachy stuff. But everywhere we went, we talked about you. We prayed about you. We thought about what we were facing in the future with the ladies' events and the men's events and some of you that are on staff that are going through certain things that are wanting to grow. Do you know that what has glued us together is not whether she likes certain things and I like certain things. What brought us together is that we had a higher core value. Our core value was, if you look at the passage, was the faith of the gospel. Now, young people, look at the phrase in that verse there that says, striving together. Now, when you hear the word striving, often you think of, that must mean that there's strife, that there's argument, that you argue together for the gospel. It means you believe that, and she believes this, and so you're, you're battling it out. That's not what the Greek word means. It actually comes from two Greek words that are brought together. One word is the word with, and the other is the word, we get our word athlete, or athletics. So it's together in athletics. And probably I could use this illustration. I'm I'm not very comfortable with this illustration because I don't want you to think I'm addicted to this because I really don't care a whole lot about it. WWF wrestling, or what is it called? How many know what I'm talking about? Wrestling. See, most of you know about it more than you think. Okay, so sometimes they have what are known as tag team matches. You know what tag team matches are? All right, for you that don't know, you're in there in the ring. and the opponent's coming at you, and you're just wrestling your heart. You're, I don't know, it's mostly played up anyway. And so you're trying to reach out because when you just don't have any more strength, tag team means as long as your opponent can, can touch your fingers or you could touch their fingers, that means that you're released and they can jump in and use their energy to take over this opponent. And then this opponent says, Whoa, this guy's coming after me. So he's going over to his side of the mat in the ring and he's trying to get someone to touch those fingers so that the next group can come in. So you have a partner. And so what you're doing is you are striving together. You're in athletics together against an opponent. Well, instead of looking at mere opponents now, I want us to look in terms of we are striving together for the faith of the gospel. That means that we might disagree on whether we want pepperonis or, or, or mushrooms on our pizza. That doesn't matter. We might disagree a little bit on music. And I know there's a line on some music and words and stuff like that. But sometimes we have to paint a broader stroke. And remember, what we don't paint a broader stroke on is this. That the Word of God is the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. That Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and God are part of the Trinity. That we don't split on the um, um, salvation being by grace through faith, plus nothing, minus nothing. That we believe that this scripture is what God has for us today. That's the mighty part of the faith that we agree on. And that's what this passage is speaking about and how critical this is for us. And I pray that we buy into that. Let me tell you a sad story. Because sometimes you can strive together for the defense of the gospel. And it doesn't always mean that you're going to have a, uh, a, ch- a cherry, super-duper, shave-ice type wedding and marriage and life together. There's another man by the name of Abnaim Judson. I've read about every biography that I could get on this guy because he went and he faced all sorts of opposition. First of all, he marries a lady whom he hasn't known for very long, but because of her heart turned toward the Lord and their commitment to the gospel, and his heart turned toward the Lord and the commitment to the gospel, and they're willing to step out on faith to go to a foreign land, Burma, that they decided to go overseas to Burma. And when they did they left as being a belief system that you were sprinkled instead of baptized by immersion. And on their trip over to Burma, they were studying the word very carefully. and They had all their commentaries and their Greek books that they had at that time. And then they came to the conclusion that for a person to go to heaven, it was by faith alone. But once they trusted Christ as Savior, they had to identify with the Lord by being baptized by immersion after they were saved as an outward sign. So on board ship they realize that they were receiving money and financial support to go. They're under one belief system and now they've changed their belief system on that, that value of baptism. So they talk together between Luther Rice and Adam Judson and Luther Rice says, you're married so and you're here with your wife so you stay here. You both can't go back. I will go back and I will then tell them that we are resigning from our mission organization and we are totally living by faith for God to take care of us. And I'll try to give you some support. So he goes to a land he's never been to, has to learn a language he never knew and try to communicate to people who were so anti whenever they'd hear about God because they were so embedded with their own belief system. So when Judson arrived there, it wasn't long before he started to speak for the faith, Soon after that, he was thrown in jail, but not our kind of jail. They had to make a jail for him that was like a pigsty. It was so filled with filth in there. And when you go to jail in those days, in that country, nobody took care of you. You were in jail. Basically, they put you into a box and let you die unless someone else brought you food. His wife then had to bring him food. And she would have to sneak it to him and sneak it to him because they would try to um, harass her as being a woman and all that stuff. So she would then scrape some garbage through the cracks in this pigsty to get to him. But yet, together, their hearts were knit together for love for the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. It wasn't long after that he said to her, Could you at least smuggle me in a Bible? So she then began to give a little bit of food to the guards so that the guards eventually would give him a, like a blanket, like a little a jacket. And so she hid pieces of the Bible in that, smuggled it in through the guards to her husband so he would then have the word. He never lost his faith. She never lost their faith. They never lost their calling to the Burmese people to give them the gospel. Well, then he realized that she was pregnant. And then she, he found out that she ceased coming to see him anymore. And found out that she gave birth and then she died. They were knit together, they strove together for the faith of the gospel. And so not all of it's going to end a very positive way. The only thing I can tell you this is that when she died, probably a horrible death, she stood before the king of kings and God opened up the windows of heaven and blessed her and that there will be rewards at the judgment seat of Christ for her faithfulness. And so what happened is just what they did. They kept the main thing, the main thing. So in your marriage, you keep the main thing, the main thing. It's your spiritual life development, the gospel. You keep the main thing, the main thing on your job. It's not about money and bucks. It's about your character and manifesting that you're a citizen of heaven. It's not about your little views and your committees and teams, even at church. It's going to be about that you're set for the defense of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We keep the main thing, the main thing, serving together in evangelism. Here's number three. So it's not just serving together in evangelism. He says this, that we will stay together encourage. And I believe that's probably where we could use the word encourage, that we encourage one another, and that we're going to stay together in courage. Look at the verse. It says this, with one mind striving together. In other words, we think the same way. We feel the same way. We speak the same thing. We're striving together on the same team. And it says, not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition but to you of salvation and that from God. All right, let me see if I can make some sense out of the phrase terrified by your adversaries and proof of perdition for you because those are words that our young people probably aren't quite as familiar with. All right, when you hear the word terrified, you think of something that happens that kind of wakes you up in the middle of the night, and it's so loud, it startles you, and you see what it is, and you are scared silly with something like that. How many of you have been so terrified it almost took your breath away, you felt like your heart stopped? Would you raise your hand? Has there anybody been terrified by that? All right, I, I, I have not been very much like that. I can tell you I've had a gun held in my head on two occasions. Yeah, there was a bit of terrifying... That is not what that Greek word means here. Young people, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that you're so terrified of your enemies. God doesn't want to be terrified of our enemies. That word is a different word. It's a word that we would translate today. It would be the word that we're startled. It kind of catches us off guard. And generally, we're startled by something that we weren't aware of. Let me give you another illustration. How many of you have ever ridden a horse or into horsemanship? If you're riding horses, if you've ever done that. Have you ever noticed how sometimes a horse will sometimes hear something or see something that will spook the horse, and the horse, you know, kind of, so he's, he's terrified, yeah, but really he's more startled by that. And now once you look at it, it's really nothing. How many of you have a cat at the house? And all you got to do is just kind of, the wall, and the cat goes, you know. Well, he's not really terrified. What is this? I'm just hitting the wall, that's all. I'm not shooting the cat. But it's startled by that. And so what this passage is saying here that you who are Christians who have decided to live together for the defense of the gospel, that nothing should startle you with your enemies. In other words, expect that you will have opposition come your way. Expect it. Don't be startled. Don't be terrified by that.
0: You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Florida Bible College in